We have two readings this morning. Um, The first is from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter uh, 9, starting at verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The second reading is from the book of Malachi. It's chapter 2, starting at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room and room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, 
says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Do keep Malachi open, that's where we are. If you're joining us, we'll be working our way through this uh, little book of Malachi for uh, a few weeks now. We come to uh, uh, this section, which, not by design, because we're not that clever, uh, happens to be on money when uh, I've stood up and mentioned that anyway. Just not that able to coordinate such things, but uh, there we go. Let me lead us again in prayer as we uh, look at this together. I, the Lord, do not change. Father, what a comfort, what an encouragement, what a truth needed that is to us, that you are the unchanging God, and yet the God who speaks in every generation, the God who speaks by his words to us today. So, Father, while you do not change, we need to. So would you be about the work of changing us, we pray, through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of justice? If he hates evil and suffering, where is he? That is a good question. You've had to have become somewhat numbed by the news cycle to never ask that question. I think everyone asks it at certain points. Something breaks through the relentless bad news on the TV news and you think, how can that be? I don't know what it might be for you, but even in a week such as this, when another scandal breaks of child sex abuse, this time in football, but I think certainly more acutely as you hear, do you see some of the reports coming through now from Mosul? The, the treatment of the Christian community, the absolute destruction that they've suffered at the hands of IS. There's people talking of seeing their whole family lined up and then IS warriors putting guns in the hands of eight-year-olds and telling them to shoot the adults. Utter wickedness. Where is God? Is the question. Well, God's answer is, I have come, and crucially, I will come again. And there will be a day of justice. And you have to know that. What are the alternatives? What are you going to go for in a a world where there's such crime and wickedness? Blind fate, there is no justice. The world is just how it is, so roll with it and get on with it. Yeah, 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 so wicked leaders of IS, they, they, they encourage the rape of captive girls, they develop child soldiers to kill from age eight, uh, they commit wickedness, and then they blow themselves up in one last hurrah of glory, and it's done. But where's the justice in that? They do what they want, and they die, and there's nothing, no, no, no comeback, no penalty. Well, where's that? How's that Okay. It's okay to have that view. It's just blind fate. If you never suffer wrong to you, if you're never on the receiving end of injustice, you can live with that worldview. But if you ever really engage with it, that's just not enough. The idea that blind fate, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah. Uh, that's all right, as long as I'm comfortable. Can't live that way. Well, what else do you go for? What doesn't, another alternative. There is a God, but he can't prevent it. He's like Zeus on Mount Olympus. 
He's kind of powerful, but every so often one of the other gods wins and beats him and oh well. You know, it's just how it is. But there's no comfort in that either. So God loses sometimes. So will there be justice? We can't say. So while at times we'll wrestle with it and find it unsettling, we've got to stick with the Bible's prescription. The Lord God is sovereign over everything in this world. And he does permit evil to take place within his world. But justice will come. Don't mistake his patience for injustice. No, his patience is kindness. But justice will come to this world. Every individual who has ever walked this planet will be judged. And that is good news. Deep down we know that's good news. Now, if you are just joining us, then we are in this book of Malachi. And uh, Malachi, really, it's, it's uh, six questions that the people put to the Lord. They're the complaints of a half-hearted people. Uh, it's a loveless marriage, really, between God and his people. Um, well, the, the Lord's love is constant, but theirs is not. The, the people, they can't be bothered to divorce God. They're not that animated. They haven't got that much oomph to them. But they're content to live in a loveless marriage. They're just going through the motions. They wave at one another in the mornings. They agree who'll buy the bread, but then there's nothing else for the rest of the day. It's a loveless marriage. They're going through the motions, and they're questioning the Lord. What's the point of this relationship? What's the point in, in following you? And you get six questions throughout the book of, of petulance, of irritation. And so here's one of them in chapter 2, verse 17. Where's the God of justice? Then we'll get to the other one. Uh, secondly, in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. How do we return to you? What does that mean? But let's take them in turn, these two questions today. First then, where is the God of justice? Now, let me just be clear, this is a petulant question. You can see what they're doing, verse 17. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Oh, how have we wearied you, for goodness sake? This is not a question that the psalmist might ask. How long, Lord? Why do the wicked get away with that, Lord? That's the question of, the psalmists have a question which is, Father, why? This is petulant annoyed, irritated, and they're wearying the Lord with their question. How long? You see how they put it, verse 17. All who are good, excuse me, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? What is God doing? He's swapped the labels over on humanity. He's just taken one label off a bottle and put it on another one. He's taken evil and put it on good, and taken good and put it on evil. What's the point in following a God such as that? Where is justice in this world? The evil flourish, the good do not. But God says, well, here's his response in verses 1 to 5. And you can put it this way. He, he has come to purify, 1 to 4, and he will come to judge. Two comings of the Lord. One is to refine one is for retribution. So first then, uh, verses 1 to 4, he came to purify. Let me read it. Uh, chapter, th uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I'll send my messenger, says the Lord, 
who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Here's a pattern that he gives us another. He'll give us next week in chapter 4, verse 5. Maybe we'll just want to flick there. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before that day of the Lord comes. So God says, look, what will happen will be like this. I'll send a messenger, prophet, like Elijah, and then I will come. Well, the New Testament makes clear. John the Baptist was the prophet, like Elijah. And then Jesus came. It's a prediction of that that is being spoken of here. So Jesus will come. What will he do? Well, it's future here, but of course this side of the cross, we're looking backwards. What did he do? So verses 2 to 4 are a description of the work of Jesus in the first century. Malachi is using language that they'd have understood back then. But this is what's being described. Verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? That is Jesus. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. Notice here who is refined. It's not the people. It's the Levites. That is the priestly class. They've been the problem throughout the book of Malachi, if you've been here. They were second-hand car salesmen, dodgy-type characters. Um, They'd take your offerings, but they, they would take a cut for themselves. They were completely immoral. So the problem was that the priests didn't do what they were meant to do. So the people came and brought their offerings, their offerings for sin, a goat or a pigeon, their free will offerings of thanksgiving. But they were never acceptable to God because the priest and the priests were unacceptable. That was the problem then. So the first thing that's needed is for pure priests. So do you see, Malachi, let me try and explain the parallel. Malachi says, God will purify the Levites so that the offerings to God's people are acceptable. New Testament, Jesus is the pure high priest. If you trust in him, then your offerings or sacrifices are acceptable. Do you see how that works? Or as it's put in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 13 will be one very, very clear place. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, because he's a good high priest. Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Don't forget to do good and share with others. But with such sacrifices, God is pleased. People now, the things we do are pleasing to God because they go through Jesus. We have a great priest. Or daft example. I might have something um, desperate. I'm desperate to tell Theresa May something. You might think, yeah, I'm desperate to tell her a few things. But anyway, just think one thing. There's one thing. Perhaps I, somehow like, I'm a Jack Bauer type figure. I've discovered some plot to destroy the UK. Um, in, not Brexit. Don't go there. Um, uh, it's not a political comment. This is, you know, some virusy, nuclear-y type thing rolled into one. Uh, there's a plot to destroy the UK. And I'm desperate to tell Theresa May. But, and I, so I try. I go to 10 Downing Street. And I've seen how it works on the telly. 10 Downing Street's got a magic door. You just walk up. Whoop, but the door opens. You never knock on the door, do you? Whenever anyone walks up, whoop, it just opens. Uh, so I know how that works. So I go up to the door. Of course, I don't get anywhere near the door. I'm stopped at the gate. 
And I think, but I've got to tell Theresa May there's a, there's a nuclear, biological, chemical-y thing about to land uh, with aliens um, uh, in the UK. And I must tell her, but I've got no chance. You never take my call. It's the Reverend Matthew Fuller, you know. Uh, you're never going to take my call. But, 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 what if I'd gone to university and was best mates with her beloved nephew? And I ring him and say, look, Stephen, we've got to, got to speak to your aunt. He says, yeah, yeah, it's all right. I'm having dinner with her tonight. Come with me. Well, okay, tonight. But there is, you know, we've only got 24 hours, you know, and it's in real time, this crisis. Uh, but anyway, it, um, it sort of works. And, you know, I can go through him and then I have access. Well, our sacrifices, all the things we do, the lives, we, the, the good deeds we do, they're all acceptable to God now through Jesus. That's the promise here in Malachi. When Christ came, he's the pure high priest. Now through him, we can live a life that's pleasing. Okay. But crucially to this question, second little thing here, verse 5, he will return to judge. Judgment will come, verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now look, that's an eclectic list to our, to our title, to our sort of ears, isn't it? You know, what are the most wicked things in society? You probably wouldn't go for sorcerers. Um, but there's social justice there. There's all sorts of things in the list. I guess the summary is, you don't fear me in the last clause. Not a cowering fear. It just means obey the Lord. You don't obey me. You don't trust that I should be followed. So essentially the people say, petulantly, where's the God of justice? And the Lord's response is, are you ready for me? If you want justice, it's coming. Are you ready for that day when I judge everyone? Oh, if you've trusted in my son, Jesus Christ, then you're acceptable to me. But otherwise, if you're judged on your own merits, really? You really want to judge, you really want me to judge everything you've ever done in your life. Are you ready? So sometimes when we feel in our own hearts, where is the God of justice? We need to remember God has been patient with us. And he's giving this world patience or showing it patience. It's a feature of his kindness. He is giving time for people to return to him through Jesus Christ. Where is the God of justice? Oh, I'm coming. Are you ready? Is the Lord's response. But they push against that. And so I guess the second question is this. Okay, you say return. What does it mean to return to the Lord? What does that actually mean? Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. 
but you ask, how are we to return? Now, in Hebrew, return, repent, same word, you just, you choose how you translate it, context someone sometimes determines it, but it's the same word. Turn around, return to me. Fundamentally, you do that by trusting in Jesus Christ. But here, Malachi will say, here's one indication that you've repented. Here is one tangible demonstration that you are now seeking to obey me. It's your money. They ask, verse 7, how are we to return? The Lord's response, verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. How do we return to him? Answer, you stop robbing him. Very silly thing to do to try and rob money from God, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, he's got the most perfect CCTV system in the world. He's omniscient and omnipotent. He knows everything, sees everything. So it's a very silly thing to try and rob the Lord. But look at this. Um, let's uh, read, it, read the detail. It's a very striking promise that gets made. Verse 8, you ask, how are we robbing you? Answer, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there'll be not room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now that's quite a promise, isn't it? What do we do with that? You don't need to be a Christian for very long to know that people do a lot of crazy things with that. You know, people view it as a sort of delivery system. You know, you pay your £10 to God and he'll return you 100 and it's guaranteed. What do you do with a promise such as this? You give your 10% and I will throw open the floodgates of heaven and you'll be, there'll be so much that there aren't enough digits on the screen to calculate your bank balance. What do you do with a promise such as this? Well, we need to understand, let me ask, I mean, there's a little table at the bottom of your sheets. It might even appear, who can tell? Uh, But um, uh, let me ask three little questions. There we go. There's a sort of a who, a what, and a where. Thanks, Sam. Who is this promise with? Well, back then, verse 9, you are under a curse, your whole nation. In the Old Testament, God made a promise with the nation of Israel. With them. So Deuteronomy 28, 29. Nation of Israel, you obey me, you'll be blessed. You disobey me, you'll be cursed, as he speaks of here. It was never in the Old Testament universally applied to individuals. It's not a promise for individuals. Or you look at someone like Job, who God says, here is the most blameless man who's ever walked the planet. And what happens to him? Catastrophe, 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 catastrophe. He loses everything. Oh, Not many of those who I guess will be known as prosperity preachers who love verses such as this, give to me and you'll get more back from God. Not many preach on Job. It's a promise to the nation corporately back then, not so much to individuals. In the New Testament, God makes a new covenant with his church. So again, we need to be slow to say this is a promise for individuals. Can't always be that. Well, hold on a minute. In the pages of the New Testament, you see Jesus walking, the only perfect man who's ever lived. 
who has nothing. So you need to be careful who it's a promise with. Uh, where is the promise? Let me ask that one second. It's, to, it's in the land. So in the Old Testament, the promise was always tied to the land. Israel is an, um, uh, an arable economy. It, 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 so they grow crops and harvest, etc., etc., etc. So the, they are told every year, annually, 10% of everything you grow, you give to the Lord. Actually, let's put it more specifically. 10% of everything you grow, your tithe, annually, you give to the temple. It's for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem and the, the, the paying of the, the, the Levites. On top of that, as he indicates here, you make offerings. So it's 10% to the temple, and then you make offerings to, well, for Thanksgiving offerings every three years. There's another tithe, the, uh, the triennial uh, tithe for those who are poor to cope for them. So it was never just 10% of the Old Testament. You've got tithes and those offerings on top. But it's all tied to the land. Now, for you and me, if we had to give 10% of everything we grew, I mean, that's sort of a little bit of a dead daffodil or something. Obviously, not quite the same. In the New Testament, the chief blessing is the promised land of heaven. Not a physical land, the promised land of heaven. So, for example, Matthew 19, the rich young ruler says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Or the Sermon on the Mount. Make sure you're storing up treasure in heaven. So where, where is this abundant blessing? Well, primarily for us Christians now, it's in heaven. Not in a land. The promised land is not Israel. For you and me, it's in glory. So there's a who, there's a where. Uh, and what... Well, of course, it's obvious back then, uh, what is the blessing? The promise of is of an enormous harvest of, vi- of, uh, of uh, wine and grain. Now, I-, I take it that you and I, not many of us have our sort of homebrew kits. One or two of us could do okay if we got a sort of abundance of grapes landing in our lounge. Abundance of grain. Again, we don't want that, and that's not what we get. What is the promise? Well, again, in 2 Corinthians 9, as well as the promise of treasure in heaven, there is the promise here and now of a harvest of of righteousness, of enormous spiritual blessing here and now. So what do we do with this promise? Who's it for? Well, now it's for the church. Where is it? Well, primarily physically, treasure is in heaven. But what is it? And here and now, it's spiritual blessing, a harvest of righteousness. That's how you take a promise such as this. But the principle is still the same. Don't rob God. The practice of regularly giving a proportion of our income to the Lord's work is basic and essential for a Christian. Don't rob God. What does that look like today? Well, the New Testament Testament never puts a figure, never puts a number upon it. 
no tithes or anything in the New Testament. I guess the presumption is if, if Israel, operating under law, gave 10%, for Christians operating under grace, knowing so much more, having so much greater understanding and riches of blessings, of course you'll give more than 10%. If you don't, or you haven't understood the gospel in some sense. But there's no number given in the New Testament. So I guess it's our underlying attitude. I guess a problem for many of us is that we think that we own our income and we own our possessions, and we don't. We're just stewards. We are looking after the Lord's money, his income, his possessions. So I hope and take it that that, that no one here would steal from their employer. I know some here are employers and have had the experience of, of staff stealing from them. It's a miserable thing. But I hope you wouldn't do that. People do. Did you, uh, it was last month, um, the case of Martin Trenor came to trial. Did you read that one? Remember him? He was manager of M&S in Cambridge, um, which sounds sort of fairly trad and unexciting, doesn't it, in one sense? But um, uh, manager of M&S in Cambridge. But over a year, he stole over £250,000 just gradually as he was doing the cashing up. And now he's in prison. Because it's not his money. Yeah, he's handling his employer's money, but it's not his money. He's not allowed to take whatever he wants from it. He's allowed to draw a salary, but he can't just take it. And for you and me, everything we have, it is the Lord's money. Not just to take it for ourselves. It is. We're to steward it for him. It all belongs to him. But we find it hard to think that. We find it hard to give. We find it hard to give money away when we think it all belongs to us. So there's a fundamental difference between thinking, here's all my income, it's mine, and I can carve off a little bit to give to the Lord. That's very different from, here's everything I own. It's God's, really. And what do I need to keep for myself? Because everything else is his. What do I need? A fundamental shift in how you think. It's his. And of course, we all think to ourselves, yeah, but, 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 I've worked hard for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked long hours. Yeah, yeah, and the Lord gives you your energy. Yeah, it's my intelligence. Yeah, yeah, but the Lord gave you your brains. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I've, I've exploited this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, but which he gave to you. It's all from him. There is nothing you have which you would not have but from the hand of God. It's his. And you're always a little bit careful with, more careful with other people's stuff, aren't you? When you, go to some, if, when you go to someone's house and perhaps you stay for a few days, maybe they're there, maybe they're not there, you house sit for a few days in someone else's house, you're always a little bit more careful with their stuff than your own. You know, a little bit more careful with the crockery and all the, the glasses. Ooh, we don't want to break them. The, uh, they look expensive. You're always a bit more careful to tidy up. Whereas in your own house, you sort of chuck stuff around and you, know, you never bother tidying up. It's all a bit of a mess. You're always a bit more careful in someone else's house, aren't you? And if you're not, you really are a bad guest. Because uh, um, there's something in us which, when it's someone else's property, we take a bit more care of it. You're driving someone else's car, you're always a bit more nervous. Uh, you're never, sort of, never an amber gambler in someone else's vehicle because it's theirs, it's not yours, and you know that. Well, perhaps we need that attitude with the Lord's money. It's not mine, it's his. Just handling it for him. It's his. 
So, so what would it mean for you and me to rob from the Lord? I don't know. The principles are there in 1 Corinthians 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You don't give much, you won't get much back. Not a harvest of righteousness, nor treasure in heaven. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, a harvest of righteousness, growing in your character, blessings to others, a treasure in heaven. So practically as we finish, for us as a church, I say we're a rich church, relatively, trying to be generous. Not everyone in this church is rich. I know not all individually, but collectively, cumulatively, compared to the rest of the country and certainly the rest of the world, we are. And so we're still fairly young as a church. We're trying every year to to up the percentage that we give away, half a percent every year, until uh, at the level of 20% is what we've said. Now that's always going to be a stretch. It's quite hard work to do that. But I hope we can. I hope we do. And the Lord says, I promise you a harvest of righteousness amongst your own church if you're that generous. It'll be a rich blessing to us and to many if and when we achieve that. It's a great goal to have. For us individually, personally, of course, even in a room such as this, there'll be a whole variety of, uh, we'll be at different levels of where we are income-wise, and in truth, just Christian maturity-wise. There'll be different levels of those. Therefore, there'll be different levels to how much we can give. But when we sit down and, okay, we're going to have a think about what we're doing with our giving and we pray about it. I hope, I hope that we, we, don't, we have in our mind's eye the attitude, I want to be generous. I'm stewarding the Lord's money for him. I'll take what I need and I'll be generous with the rest. I hope we think in, in that way. So here is, uh, here is the income and okay, I, I, I want to serve church uh, and this church uh, maybe, and so I'm going to live here in a place which is uh, helpful to do that, and then uh, I'm going to give money, and then well, we'll work out the rest, holidays and, and bills, and well, bills are a bit different, but holidays and, and clothing and food, and we can work out the rest afterwards. I'll take what I need. But not more than that, really. I don't, there are no rules. There are no rules. We can't lay down rules but the culture or an attitude which says this money is mine and I can give some, I think that is a culture in our hearts which robs the Lord rather than this money is his. I'll take some, but give as much as I possibly can. I think it's an attitude of heart more than raw numbers. But here is an indication of whether you've really returned to the Lord wholeheartedly. Are you robbing him? I hope not. And I hope we'll see personally, and for us as a church, the floodgates opened for a harvest of righteousness. So two questions that they ask. The Lord, where is the God of justice? I'm returning. Are you ready? Says the Lord. I will bring justice when I come. Are you ready? Have you trusted in my son, Jesus Christ? And therefore, do you live your life through him? That is the most important thing you need to do. Offering sacrifices through him. Because only through him can anything you ever do be acceptable. Are you ready for him? You need to know, verse 
chapter 3, verse 6, that the Lord does not change. It is a wonderful statement. He doesn't change. Therefore, you can rely on him to always provide. You can rely on him to be generous. You can rely on him to bring justice and reward. He has, in the first century, already thrown open the floodgates of heaven to pour out the blessing, if I could put it in those terms, of his son. And as Paul would put it, if God has given up his son for us, you can trust him to give all things. If God has given up his son, you can trust him to bring justice. You can trust him to reward you. Absolutely. But he'll return. Justice will return with Jesus Christ. Are you ready for him? Have you trusted in him? Have you shown that in your life? Justice will come. Let's pray together. Our Father, the book of Malachi is unsettling as it addresses uh, a people half-hearted in their love for you. And we know that in our own lives. We are so very grateful, those of us who are Christians, to know that whatever we do for you is acceptable because we're trusting in Jesus Christ and he gives us access to you. But Father, would we as those who know that who know the wonderful freedom of coming before you, the freedom of all our offerings being acceptable, would we not rob you? Rather, would we be known as a generous people? Because we know we're rich spiritually. Therefore, we're willing to give of our wealth now, looking for a harvest of righteousness in this life and looking forward to great treasure in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.